Welcome to the podcast that demands ambition, passion, and courage in order to succeed in this mission called life. All you have to do is just pass your limit. Go beyond your restraints by embracing the physical, intellectual, and emotional suck that life will throw at you. I'm your host, Ugo. I do not claim to be the subject matter expert, but I will share my experiences and I'll ask my guests to do the same. The discussions will be guided by honesty and civility. Some episodes will have guests, but most of them will be me and you. No excuses accepted here, people. None. I'm excited to get after it. So without further ado, let's go. Today, my guest is very special. She doesn't only talk the talk, she actually takes the initiative to try to make or bring about change to areas where she sees issues or complexities that don't make sense to all involved. And in that, I mean sexism or equality. I've watched her from afar and I am very humbled to have her here. Before we go into the topic of today, which is false equivalence in sexism. I, as always, like to give that context of who the guest is and what their story is, because for those that haven't heard this podcast before, my goal is to find the how. How do people overcome adversity? How do people overcome their challenges in life? And how do they persevere? And my guest today, in my opinion, embodies that. So without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself, tell her story before we segue into the topic of today. Mel? Thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm not sure if I deserved it, but uh, I appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. I'm really excited um, to see where this conversation goes. Uh, I feel like it's going to be very dynamic, if nothing else. Yes. So um, with every episode, I always like my guests to basically share their background and their experiences. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, Okay. So I am a captain in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, I started off in the Air Force, actually the Air National Guard, um, where I was enlisted for five years, and then I commissioned into the Marine Corps. And prior to that, um, I had two little girls, who are now, one of them is a grown woman, and one of them is almost a grown woman. They're 16 and almost 20. And I am the proud mother of three dogs and two cats. Nice. So just to get some more context, um, prior to you joining the Air Force, you were a single mom? Correct. So I uh, was pregnant at 16. Uh, I had my daughter between my junior and senior year. So I started my senior year with a three-month-old, and I graduated with an almost one-year-old. And then um, I got pregnant again at 20, 
because apparently I don't know how birth control works, <laughs> and uh, had my second daughter at 21. How did you manage everything, I mean, and still join the military? Because I thought if you had kids, you couldn't join as a woman. You have right? to get a waiver. A I have waiver. Okay. tons of waivers. Okay. So... Tattoo waivers, kid waivers, medical waivers. They were desperate. It was 2004. They needed people. So that's... I got lucky. So... And that's why I asked you to come on here because you... Someone looking at you from the outside will think, oh, this is a white woman, blonde hair. Life is easy for you. And that's not the vibe I get at all. I really wish life had been easy. Um... I grew up in a military family. My mom was a lieutenant colonel. She uh, retired when I was in, just about to start high school. So I spent um, basically my entire elementary through middle school overseas. Um, and coming back to the U.S. was probably the biggest culture shock I had. Um, I had lived in Turkey, Germany, um England, the Philippines, and then coming back to the U.S. as a teenager was, um, it was, it was a shock. It was really difficult. Um, I had a lot of adjustment issues. Um, I was used to moving every three years and now we were going to be stuck in this one shithole city. It wasn't right. a city. It was a small, like country rural town. And it was just such a, um, a disjointing experience for me. And I hated it. Um, I hated hated it because um, I had been used to growing up around so many different people. You know, Turkey is is a part Muslim country. Um, uh, The Philippines is, you know, actually uh, predominantly Catholic in the area that we were in, but there were also so many different people and religions. and, And walking around, you saw so many different people. And then to come to... Cheney, Washington, where it's 99.9% white, and everybody has lived there their entire life. They've all grown up together. Their families have grown up together. And I show up, and I'm an outsider. I don't have any context in terms of what it's like to live in this small country town where everybody knows everybody, and everybody looks alike, and I swear they're inbred. Um, (laughs) It was just... It was the very opposite of everything that I had spent my entire life growing up around. I had spent my entire life growing up around people from all different backgrounds, all different, um, you know, walks of life to then come to this place where it was, it's almost like the Stepford wives. Right. But like, I guess the difficult part for me to understand of some, something you said I've never heard before is you notice that 99.9% of the people there were white. You're white though, like so. Right, right, but it was when you when you're in the military, you look around, and the military is this you know this slice of of American culture. So you have Latino, you have Black, you have Asian, you have mixed, you have white, you have you have everybody, and they all come with this just amazing story. Everybody comes there for their own reasons. They all come and they want to serve for different reasons. But then even living in the in the, the countries that we did, my parents refused to live on base. We always lived off base because they said, we didn't move to a different country for you to be around nothing but Americans. Right. So 
my my babysitters when I was little, when I we lived in the Philippines, they were all Filipino. We spoke Filipino. I ate Filipino food. Uh, I ate with my hands because that's the the, the custom and the culture right. there. Right, similar to Nigeria. Yeah. Right. Uh, when I was in Turkey, same thing. I would you know walk to and from school and and on the corners because it was a NATO base. It wasn't a real military base. Um, For those that don't understand, what's a NATO base? So NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a, a conglomeration of different countries um, that are bound together um, that have basically pledged mutual support and aid to one another. But there's no base. Like, there's no guard that you would show your ID to and you drive on base. It was just designated buildings. These were designated buildings that, that, that um, people worked in. And so when I would walk to school, there would be armed Turkish military members on the corner. And so that was just, for me, it was it was comforting. It was, okay, good. There's a good guy with a gun who's going to protect me if anything goes wrong. I was never right. afraid to see that. And so, again, you know, jumping ahead to 1995 when we moved to Chini, it was, it was just, I was taken aback. And I didn't... I didn't understand. Like these people were like, yeah, I'm a farmer and my dad's been a farmer and I'm going to be a farmer and I'm going to marry my next door neighbor and we're all going right. to live here forever. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Right. There's an entire world out, out there. there. right? There's so much to see, so much to experience. And you are electing, wanting, choosing, desiring to never leave a you know two mile radius of the place you grew up. And that's such a closed mindset. And it, it just, it completely threw me for a loop and I hated it. Um, and again, I began to act out. I had behavior issues. Um, and my parents didn't know what to do because I'd never had these issues before. And now all of a sudden I was just, um, I just, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I felt like an outsider coming into this again, it's a very close knit community of people who have always been there. They went to high school, or excuse me, they went to middle school, went to elementary school. Their moms all know each other. Right. And then here comes, you know, this kid in eighth grade who didn't belong, who wasn't one of them, who, you know, didn't have the same. Well, let me ask you this though. So you said you didn't belong. Did they make you feel like you didn't belong or you just felt like you didn't belong? I would say it was a little bit of both. Um, Really? Because, I mean, when they're talking about, oh, you know, remember when we all went to the same summer camp, right? I don't have anything. I've never been to summer camp. Not that I can ever remember. I don't think I've ever, like, been to a, you know, traditional summer camp. So I don't have anything to add to this. But they all went to the same summer camp. Oh, remember that one year when so-and-so... So... Even if not um, explicitly trying to exclude me by only talking about memories or experiences that they've shared because they grew up together, right? I had nothing to contribute. Got it. Right? What am I going to talk about? Oh, the one time I went to Paris for my spring break. I mean, one that sounds bougie as fuck. Right, right. <laughs> and two, they really don't care because Paris is not some place they ever want to go. Right. You know, they want to stay in their little town and they want to live their little town life and. Why would they want to go to Paris? They don't speak English there. They're not Americans there. Interesting. Wow. That's, I don't want to digress. I'll let you keep speaking to 
your experience because we could go into a whole bunch of uh, rabbit holes. topics, though, rabbit holes, because yeah. nationalism is something we can speak on, but I'll let you keep going. So, long story short, um, I got pregnant at uh, 16. Um, I had my daughter when I was 17, right. and um, I still graduated from high school. Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to join the military, um, but the timing wasn't right, obviously. Um, and then once, uh, 9-11 happened, I, I just knew that I wanted to be part of the fight. Um, right. I wanted to, to get in there and I wanted to, you know, to get some. So it took a long time. Um, but, uh, finally in 2004, I was able to enlist. Awesome. So you went to Lackland Air Force Base. I did. And went through basic military training like I, I did. did. Yep. yep. <laughs> That's awesome. And how was your experience in the Air Force? In terms of, did you experience any sexism or anything like that? So it's really funny because when I was, the MOS or the Military Occupational Specialty or in the Air Force terms, the AFSC, um, that I had was in engineers. And so it was a bunch of blue collar guys, construction workers, if you will. Right. Um, and again, I think that the, the military is such a, a slice of the American population because there were some of the people that I worked with that I think are probably some of the best people that I've ever met. And mm-hmm. there were some people that were just... Um, you know, sexist pieces of shit. Right. But I don't think that that's indicative of the military. I think that's indicative of the fact that, again, the military is a slice of the American public. And so you're going to get the good with the bad. It's like casting a net. You're going to get right, what you but, want, but you're also going to get other things. But how do we get past that? Though? Like, how do we get everyone to the same standard of respecting the other people's boundaries and not being jerks? Is that even possible? I don't think it is. I don't think it is, but. And I'm not talking about fairness. So no, 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 no. I know we had the conversation about fairness. It's, it's not. I think that people who are bigots, whether you're sexist, racist, misogynistic, you know, pick whatever it is that you're against. That's not a reflection of the people that they are viewing. It's a reflection of their own insecurities. Mm. It's. So you can't fix, you know, quote unquote, fix it because in order to do that, those people need, they do, they need counseling. They need to fix themselves. If you project so much of your own insecurities on somebody else that it makes you hate them for whatever reason, again, pick it because they have a vagina, because they're black, um, because they're handicapped. That's not a reflection of the person you hate. That's a reflection of you. What is it about that person that... Makes you uncomfortable? Well, not even makes you uncomfortable, that threatens you. Mm. Does it threaten you that as a woman, I'm smarter than you? Wow. Would you be less threatened if I was an old white man with a beard and I was smarter than you? How you perceive me and how I threaten you is indicative of your own insecurities. Wow. So I don't think that you can fix it. Um, and I was I was reading an article, um, and it talked about adjusting your behavior 
Um, and so when I, you know, when I, what do you mean adjusting? I'm I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm I'm about to expound on it. So when, when there is somebody that doesn't like me because pick a reason, I mean, sometimes people have really good reasons for not liking me. I get it. I can be a bitch and I a hundred percent own that. But if you don't like me because I'm a woman or you don't like me because, well, she wears too much makeup. I don't like her because, well, her clothes are too tight. I used to try to adjust my behavior. Okay, well, maybe if I wear something different, um, they'll treat me like a person. Maybe if I don't wear as much makeup, they'll treat me like a person. Maybe if I, you know, do X, Y, and Z, they'll treat me like a person. And that's not the case. They're never going to treat me like a person because they stop viewing me as a person. They have not given me the, even the, um, the dignity of being a human. I'm a commodity. Objectified. Well, I see. And when I finally realized there's nothing I can do, I cannot appease someone who's going to hate me or not like me or discriminate against me because again, pick my clothes, my hair, my makeup, my pink purse. Um, then fuck them. You know, I'm I'm not gonna change but, any more. Well, will that mindset help though? Like, cause- but but what is gonna help? What is gonna help is that I can I can appease them, but right. I'm not appeasing them. They're still not gonna like me for whatever reason. Right, but you have or, a goal though. You have something you're trying to achieve, and they can impede your progress. So if but, you have the mindset of okay, fuck them, and you do whatever you want to do. They, you're giving them a reason to stop your progress. I've given them a reason by having a vagina. True. True. And, and okay. that's not going to change. And the less that I acknowledge them, the less power they have. Mm. The more I acknowledge them, the more I come up to meet them with their demands, the more power I've given them. And to quote my beloved George Bush... I don't negotiate with terrorists and anybody who wants to not like me because I have a pink purse because my nails are done. Um, yeah, fuck you. Right. Right. I will, I will rise up. I will meet you. I will, I will do whatever needs to get done in order to accomplish whatever needs to happen. But I'm not changing who I am because you don't like that. It's a reflection of you, not me. Mm. So I have found that I have to now do the same thing when I'm like, I don't like that person. And then I have to stop and think, what is it that I don't like about them? And sometimes it's, I really don't like their attitude. I'm sick and tired of listening to them bitch all the time. I'm tired of their negativity. And in that case, that's fine. I can own that. But if I don't like someone, for an example, I'm not a Patriots fan. (laughs) And for a long time, I would... It's like, man, I hate Tom Brady. Right. And then I had to actually stop and say, why do I hate Tom Brady so much? Like, I don't know this guy. He's never done anything to me. Right. And I was like, I hate Tom Brady because I'm jealous. He has a gorgeous wife, beautiful kids. He's so incredibly successful. I mean, you got to give it to the man. He is a fantastic quarterback. He works hard at his craft. And when I kind of said, well, 
he has everything that he has because of how hard he's worked. worked. That man is dedicated to his workout schedule. He's dedicated to his nutrition. He's dedicated to his fitness. He busts his ass to be where he's at. Why should I hate him for that? I should applaud him. Again, like, let's go back to the fact I'm not even a Patriots fan. But when I realized that my dislike of him stemmed from jealousy, I was able to put myself in check. But you see, you're taking ownership, though. And most people don't do what you're doing. And that's like a microcosm of society right there where people kind of envy those that are wealthy and they don't really see the effort that those people put into getting to where they are and sustaining it. Right. So sustainment is actually really key because a lot of people are given things, right? Their their parents are wealthy or they've, you know, come into money. But unless you can sustain that, then you're gonna burn out. And right. so I know Kim Kardashian gets a lot of flack and God love her. She became, you know, as famous as she did off of a sex tape. And it could have right. ended there. There's right. a lot of people who right. just they they hit their peak because of you know one thing, and then they fizzle out. But look at how incredibly successful she has become. She has a reality TV show. She has her fashion line. She has you know she's her perfume. She what she's done is she's taken it and built it out into an empire. And if that was a man, if we looked at a man who had one embarrassing episode but took it and capitalized on it and became this mogul, we'd be like, wow, he's so successful. But instead, what we do is we continuously talk about Kim Kardashian's a slut. Oh, she's famous because she slept with someone. Yeah, well, look at Ray J. He didn't capitalize on it. When's the last time he's done shit? Wow, that's a, I never thought about anything like that before, like in terms of the sexist view. What she did was she took something that was potentially detrimental, potentially, you know, um, career ending, career ending. <laughs> and she was like, hold on, what can I do off of this? And now she capitalized, she capitalized on it. She's built herself out. And now let's look at what else she's done. She's lobbying and advocating for prison reform. Oh, right, right. Right. And people are like, well, what does that bimbo know anything about? Oh, she's just a slut. Oh, she's just got big tits and ass. So suddenly, somebody who has tits and an ass obviously doesn't have an IQ. Mm. So, so your your breast size and your pant size are directly correlated to your IQ. Mm. Wow. Which is bullshit. Right. Because clearly, she's doing something right. The woman is a multi-millionaire. So let's even look even further down the Kardashian chain. You've got Kylie Jenner, who's a right. billionaire. Right. They say right? she's self-made, though. So she even went back and corrected and said she's not oh, okay, self-made. Okay, okay. But even, so, so, right. So now we want to pick at semantics. Oh, well, is she really self-made? Because she came from the Kardashians. Well, her sister has a lot to do with that. Her sister right? has a lot to do with it. But how much work did she put into her Kylie cosmetics? Right? Like, I personally don't own any um, because her fucking lip kits are like $25. Right? I don't have that kind of money to throw away on lipstick. But my daughters do. Right, right. But, but, but here's my thing is that... She could have just been a strap hanger, right? She could have just been like mooching off the Kardashian wealth and right. her life would have been set. Right. But what she did was she took her high school education, because right. that's all she has, right? and she said, okay, I'm going to build my own empire. And she capitalized on the Kardashian name and she expanded it. And now she is a 
billionaire. Right. I'm not saying she's not successful. I just had an issue with the self-made aspect of it. I don't even care, right? So say it's self-made or say it's not self-made. At the end of the day, her bank account says billionaire. Right, right. So, so let me ask you this about Cardi B then, since we're we're on this topic. Let's right? talk about my girl Cardi. So shout out Cardi, I love you. So they try to basically cancel Cardi B, right, right, right. because of what she said about men and drug drugging men. Yep. And men are arguing that this is the same thing that if if that was a man, he'd probably be in jail right now. And so what's the difference between what she did and what some men do and go to jail for? So there's not one person. To include Cardi B that has said her actions were condonable. There's nobody that's come out and said, well, but wait. uh." Cardi herself has come out and said, I'm not proud of what I did. That's why I don't rap about it. Um, I'm not proud of what I did. That's why I don't, you know, bring it up. But I did what I did because I had to survive. And I've seen, um, actually, yesterday night on my Facebook page before I went to bed, there was a guy who made this post that said, oh, Cardi B did the same thing that Bill Cosby did. And I think that the fundamental difference is that Cardi B was a young teenage girl who was not in a position of power, who was in an exceptionally vulnerable position, who... So you're saying a stripper... Let me finish. A stripper is not... This is where we're going to start our argument. So you're saying a a stripper does not have a position of power in that position? No, because she's relying on a man to give her money... To show her naked. But let me finish. Okay. So, she lures these men back, drugs them, robs them. What Bill Cosby did was used his position of power in terms of, I'm a superstar. I can make or break your career. Um, And he systematically, over decades, even when he was extremely popular, very famous, continued to drug and rape women. So I find it very difficult to conflate a man who has a position of power, meaning you're a superstar, you're this television personality, you can use your reputation and your influence to get jobs for these women, and you invite them back to your house, and then you drug and you rape them with a stripper who is only taking her clothes off because she needs your money. Right. Um, But you're not saying it's right, though. No. Right, right. And again, what I'm saying is no one's saying it's right. But what I'm saying is that you cannot conflate the two. You cannot conflate a woman who is not in a a position of power, who is basically hustling and scrapping to do what she needs to do, who isn't proud of what she's done, but unlike everybody else, has said, yes, I take responsibility for my actions. No, I'm not proud of it. But you have men like... Harvey Weinstein, um, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, all of them who refused to take responsibility for their actions. They were men in extreme positions of powers who used that power uh, over those women to abuse them and take advantage of them. For what gain? Cardi B wanted money because she needed to survive. What gain did these men get other than they could take advantage and abuse these vulnerable women? There is a huge difference. And it's bullshit that you've got men that are like, oh, well, you know, Cardi B did the same thing. But no, she didn't do the same thing. What she did was wrong and it was criminal and no one will argue that. Right. But she did not do the same thing. There's a fundamental difference between being raped and being robbed. Right. You can get your money back. 
You can get your, your watch back from a pawn shop. You can never get the sanctity of having your body violated back by a man. There is a fundamental difference. Right. And the motivation is fundamentally different. Wow. I robbed so that I can survive versus I raped because I could. And took my took the person's dignity. I, I, I used my position of power to lure women in so that I could rape them is completely different than I'm a 18-year-old girl, 19-year-old girl, because when she did this, she was a an older teen, young 20s. Right, right, right. So you're looking at a 19-year-old girl who's literally taking her clothes off so she can feed herself. And you're going to try to conflate that with Bill Cosby, who's a millionaire, with, with R. Kelly? Get the fuck out of here. It is completely different. And if you can't see that, then I think that there's something wrong with you. If you cannot see the difference, then I feel like there is some some soul searching you need to do. Right. That's awesome. You see, that's why I brought you on here because you always give clarity. And I know I, you know this. I got into an argument with people online when I tried to defend Cardi B. And a couple of men got upset with me because basically what you just said, it conflated the two and said it was a man. But I, I love the context you just gave. But so look at this. So CeeLo Green... Right. Slips a roofie into a woman's drink. He didn't go to jail. You know, he got he got a plea deal. So bullshit, she'd be going to jail if she did the same thing. But CeeLo Green did not slip a roofie into a woman's drink so that he could rob her because he was poor and needed money. He's trying His, to rape. Right. right. Well, so alleg- then, allegedly. So, I'm not. so so then you're looking at, at again, no, no. She wouldn't go to jail if she was a man because CeeLo Green didn't go to jail. Right. But CeeLo Green was not trying to rob her. Allegedly, he was going to... Why the hell would you put a roofie in someone's drink if you weren't trying to rape them? What, because they have trouble sleeping? Give them some fucking NyQuil then. Give them some, what was it, melatonin. If you're that concerned about their sleep schedule. Right. But you're not drugging and roofing women so that they can have a good night's sleep. Right. So, again, I, I call bullshit on the, well, if Cardi B was a man, false. Right. So, and and let's look at the, the the rap culture writ large. You have men that rap about raping women. You have men rapping about beating women. You have men rapping about cheating on their women. All of this shit. And what do we do? We give them a free pass. And we're like, oh, well, you know, it's just because it's in their song. Well, it's what well, they did when they're coming up. I was with you up to that point. So I do listen to a lot of rap music. And it's not rap music in general. No, no, you're right. Uh, let, me, let me expand this to pop culture because you've got... Uh, Robin Thicke and his Blurred Lines song, which is about date rape. Right. He's not a rapper. Uh, He's not a rapper. Okay. Um, The reason that I used rap was because um, Cardi B is a rapper. So I was looking at, I was doing, I was trying to do a- But but I will say this, you are right though. There are a lot of rappers do talk about- But they talk uh, about what they had to do in order to survive. Right. They talk about, I sold drugs in order to survive. I used to hustle in order to survive. I used to rob people in order to survive. And now that I am an established individual, I don't do that anymore. Right. Jay-Z's not out there shooting people and and, and robbing people. He used to sell drugs. Right. And he's almost a billionaire. But he's talking about what most of, of rap is, and- I don't mean to use this in kind of a cavalier way, but a safe space where 
You can talk about your experiences. This is what I went through in order to survive, to get to where I'm at now, and now I'm successful, right? It's this success story from, you know, hustling to survive to now thriving. And you look at that as almost a cathartic experience, right? right? They're able to vent. They're able to get that all out. Right. And the fact that Cardi B is so ashamed of what she did that she's never put that in her songs, where she doesn't brag about it. This isn't something she's proud of. This isn't something that she's glorifying. I don't I don't even know the details of it. Did she just come out and say it or did somebody find like an old video or she something? She was uh, it was a um um what was it? Uh, I an interview. Not knowing it was the it was an interview where she talked about um nothing was ever handed to her. She's okay, had to okay. hustle. Um she's had to, you know, she talks about she she stripped to make money. And part of that was she would, guys would want to fuck her. And she'd say, right. okay, let's go. Go back to the hotel, go back to wherever. And she would drug him, rob him, and leave. Um, and again, no one is saying what she did was right. Cardi's not saying what she did was right. No one is saying what she did was right. But in terms of apples to apples, there is no comparison between what she's done and what... Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein or R. Kelly have done. And I think one of the most telling things is that she takes responsibility for it. Right. Not only does she say, yes, I did this and it was wrong, but it's not a pattern of behavior she continued. These men, this is a pattern of behavior, behavior that they right. have continued. Right. Again, hustling to survive until you make it versus preying on vulnerable women continually over decades is a huge difference. Yes. Wow. Thank you for educating me. As always, we always have these conversations. And I think we digressed and we segued way too early. You hadn't finished your mm -hmm. story. And we left off at you being in the Air Force and being an engineer and being around um, construction type guys. Then, then you transitioned to the Marine Corps. Correct. correct? Um, what caused that to happen why not commission in the commission for those that don't know is going from enlisted to officer ranks um so my guest today went from being an air force enlisted airman to a marine officer which in itself is not easy because i'll say this about marines they don't have a lot of female marines but i'll let you speak to that so i had always wanted to join the marine corps and i was always told no, you're too little, you're not strong enough, you're, you'll never make it. And at the time, I was so hell-bent on joining the military that um, I joined the first branch that would approve all my waivers. Got it. So I went with the Air Force. Which is the hardest branch to join in some, some aspects right now. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I don't, in, in any, any sense, regret joining the Air Force. I love I love the time that I spent. I love the family that I, I built there. So it's not a knock on, oh, well, I, ha you know, that was my default. It's, right, right. I am very privileged and honored to say that I served in the Air Force. So please don't take anything away from that um, negatively. Um, when I was going through my tech school, which is a school where you learn how to do your job, um, I had made friends with um, four Marine MPs, which military police. And we became very good friends. And um, I won't say their names for privacy reasons. Um, but when we all graduated, 
ironically, we all deployed at the same time. It was in 2006. I went to Kyrgyzstan. I was doing the aerial support for Afghanistan. Um, and they went to Iraq. Okay. And while in Iraq, um, one of my friends was blown up um, and killed. Jesus. Uh, it was on December 11th, 2006. Um, and I still remember the day. I remember being told. And it was the first time that, even though I was deployed and it sounds weird, it was the first time war became real. Real. He stepped on an IED or something? No, he was uh, in a Humvee. And they ran over an IED, which is an improvised explosive device, which is oh, actually yeah. one of the right. the uh, the lead killers of um, service American mem- service, service members. members. Um, and I remember being so angry, just so incredibly angry. And I wanted to do anything I could, you know, to avenge his death. I didn't want it to to just be another number, another name, and. I realized from my position where I was currently at, I would not be able to do that. Right. Right? So I said, okay, what is the biggest challenge I can think of? What is the the, the greatest, you know, uh, goal I can put in front of myself? And I was like, I'm going to be an officer in the Marine Corps. Because when I looked at all the branches, I knew that the Marines were the best. And when I looked at how hard it would be, I wanted to to do the hardest thing I could possibly think of. And that was to become a Marine Corps officer. And so I came back from my deployment in 2007 and I walked into the Marine recruiter's office and I'm, you know, wearing cute little outfit. I just come from, from school, um, from college. And I said, you know, I'd I'd like to be a Marine. And the Marine recruiter kind of did a double take and he probably thought I was joking. And he said, okay, well, let's, let's do something preliminary. Have you ever done a flex arm hang? I said, nope, don't know what that is. And a flex arm hang is where you jump up on a pull-up bar and you keep your arms bent um, until, and you have to hang there with your arms, you know, uh, contracted basically for 70 seconds is the max. He said, let's see how long you can hang on this. Well, I kicked my high heels off and I jumped up. And I beat the 70 seconds by a lot. And I did not think that it was very difficult at all. And I was like, oh. So when's the hard part? And nice, his jaw nice. dropped and he was like, okay, yep, let's, we'll work with you. Cause he judged you when you walked in. Right. Right. So he judged my, you know, my pink, yeah, right. pink outfit and everything else. And, um, wow. it took, so that was in 2007. Um, and then I went to OCS, which is officer candidate school the summer before my senior year. Um, so I did that in 2008 and then in 2009, uh, I commissioned. And then in 2010, um, I went to my um, MOS school, which was Intel. You didn't go to T- TBS? I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, 2000, uh, 2009 is when I commissioned. 2010 is when I went through TBS. and then Which to, is the, the ba- basic school. All Marine officers have to go through it. Yeah. So it's six months of tons of fun. Um <laughs> Nice way to put it. So, yeah. So, 2009, November 2009, I commissioned. April 2010, I went through TBS. And then January of um, 2011 is when I went through, um, went to my um, school. school. So, I went through my Intel school from January to April. I checked into my unit May 5th. I deployed June 1st. Wow. Yeah. So, I hit the ground running. Um, And then I... Got out 
of the Marine Corps in May of 2013. And then uh, I came back in in August of 2016. So did you experience anything that people picked you out and didn't think you could achieve it because you were a woman? Um, or was everything kosher? Like, I mean, I think I come across is it's really kind of funny. I always describe it as people look at me at like this little strange bug. Like, what? What is she doing? What do we do with her? Like, okay, got it. She technically is a marine, but she doesn't look like a marine. What is that? You see, and that thing, right? what does that right. mean? What does right. that mean? What does that mean? Well, the preconceived notion is that I shouldn't like pink. Apparently, that throws people off. And my favorite color is pink. So before you speak on that, that just brought something to me. I just remembered because someone has said that to me that I don't look like the typical officer. I, I don't know if it has to do with my race, me being black. And they're like, oh, you have tattoos as well. Like, you don't so I'm, I'm covered in tattoos. Right, right. right. So it's like when people say that, what exactly do they mean? You I know? think that there is a preconceived notion of what a, a Marine should look like, right? Like John Cena. Oh, in okay. the Marine. Right. And so when they then you've got G.I. Jane, right? Like, right, oh, right. badass. She shaved her head. <laughs> right. And it's 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 very masculated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you should look masculine. You should look big and tough and like you're gonna kill someone because you're one of the you know the world's greatest fighting force. So obviously you should look like you're gonna kill someone. And pink purses don't look like you're gonna kill anyone. And so I think that when people have this preconceived notion of what a, you know, quote, Marine should look like, it is somebody that's very masculine. It's somebody that is, you know, at any moment ready to, you know, kill. Close with and destroy the Right, right. And apparently, if you wear pink, suddenly all of your powers to be able to close with, destroy the enemy disappear. Because. That's crap. Apparently, they're mutually exclusive. If you wear pink, you cannot close with and destroy. You just can't, right? Like, it's it's like kryptonite and Superman. Um, somehow, that negates your abilities to be a Marine. So, so when they see you, is this so when co- they see me, dissonance going on. Right, right. <laughs> so they see me, and then here comes, well, she loves high heels. <gasps> God forbid. She loves high heels. So clearly she can't be a Marine because Marines don't wear high heels. And she wears makeup. And she likes pink. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And I feel in my heart like a Marine. I love the Marines. I love the Marine Corps. I've never felt more proud of anything that I've done in my life. And that all gets taken away from me every single time I get told, right. oh, well, you don't act like a Marine. You don't look like a Marine. You, you know, you're not, are you really a Marine? And I understand that some of it is in jest, but a lot of times people say things that they're, quote, joking because they don't want to come across as an asshole, but that's really what they think. Mm, my dad taught me that when I was a kid. Yeah. You can tell what somebody really thinks by the way they joke. Yeah. They just ha, listen ha. closely to their jokes. So I get told, you know, like, oh... You know, are you really a Marine? Ha, ha, ha. And it's like, it's a slap in the face. It is. It is. 
and again, you give power to those that you acknowledge. And so a lot of this stuff that's said to me or said about me, I choose not to respond to because I'm not going to give it power. And also, I'm not going to change their mind. I will have a conversation with somebody who is open and is willing to learn or have an exchange of ideas. But a lot of times people aren't willing to learn. They're not willing to be open and they're not willing to have that exchange of ideas. So I'm not going to waste my time and my breath. And I'm not going to expend my emotional energy dealing with closed-minded people. And So you just keep it moving? At some point you have to hold the line though and defend yourself, don't you think? And I always say there's more power in restraint. And you do but, say that. <laughs> I know you're tired of hearing it saying it, but it's like at some point though, some people need to be addressed, don't you think? I, th- I think there's a time and a place and to pick your battles because... So how do you pick those battles though? What's the time and place? I mean, how do you decide? I think that if, if there is something to be won, mm, okay. right? So I have had more than one Marine tell me, well, you don't look like a Marine. Are you really a Marine? And... In that exchange, with one of them, I was able to explain to them, like, when you say that, it's insulting. And I don't appreciate it. And I don't want you to talk to me like that anymore. And their attitude was very reflective. And they were like, whoa, I'm really sorry. Like, I didn't realize it was coming across that way. And they stopped. But there are other people that when they say that, I realize that if I tell them, I don't appreciate the way you're talking to me. I don't like it. And I find it insulting. It's going to be this, this um, f- victim flip. Well, oh, I'm just joking. Oh, why are you so sensitive? Oh, and they become very defensive. And when you become defensive, you can't listen. And if you can't listen, then you're not ever going to understand that other person. So it's really, I might as well just talk to a brick wall. Mm. So for those people, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to me to have that interaction because right. it's more emotional energy I'm spending right. versus what's actually going to be gained. Wow. So, it, you know, you have to take it on a, on a person by person, case by case, time by time. Right. Um, uh, interaction. And there are some people that are very open to, I didn't realize I was coming across that way and that was never my intention. And I'm sorry. And then it's done. Like, we don't ever have to talk about it again. This isn't something that ever has to be brought up again. And it's now water under the bridge. And both of us are cool and we can move forward. Right. But there are other people that it's just not going to happen that way. Yeah. Let me ask you this, though. So let me segue to a question I always ask all my guests. What's the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done? And how did you overcome it? So physically, emotionally... Or intellectually? Some, do you want to do give me, give all some, three? Give me some parameters. Okay, so uh, I won't say physically. You're a Marine, so you get after it. Um, so I'll say emotionally. That's the big thing for me. So the story that I'm going to tell you, I don't want you to feel awkward or uncomfortable because it doesn't bother me anymore. Okay. Um, when I was uh, 17 and I had had my daughter, and she was maybe a couple weeks, a couple months old, um, her father was um, not a good person and we were driving in this truck and he had this uh, habit where he would always tell me I'm stupid I'm dumb 
you know, he would, he would constantly belittle me, etc. And I had had enough and I stood up for myself and I was like, I'm not stupid. I'm not dumb. And he got really mad at me. And as we're driving down the freeway, he ripped the keys out of the ignition. And if you're not familiar with what that does to a truck, it locks up the steering wheel, locks up the car. Right. And we were about to come to a, a curve. And so I'm, you know, begging him, our daughter's in the back seat, please give me the keys back. Please give me the keys back. And he was like, no, you know, you have to you admit were driving? I'm right. I was driving. He okay. was a passenger. You know, you have to admit that I'm right. Blah, blah, blah. I was fine. You're right. You're right. I'm dumb. I'm dumb. Just give me the keys. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So he gives me the keys back. He tried to kill us. And he's like, I'm gonna, if I'm going to die, you're going to die. We're all dying. And I managed to get the keys in the car, the ignition, start it back up. And I immediately got off the freeway and pulled over into a gas station. And this was before they had cell phones. And I ran to this payphone and I was going to call my dad. And I didn't know what else to do. And so I throw the car in park and I run to the payphone and he's chasing after me and um, there's this lady watching and he grabs me by my arm and I'm almost to the payphone and he grabs me by my arm and he's pulling me back in the car and he's yelling at me to like get in the car and you know we're leaving and this lady's yelling don't get in there I've called the cops and it was just the most white trash moment I've ever had and it was so humiliating that I had allowed myself to get to this point. And at the same time, I'm 17. And they don't give you those coping skills in high school on here. How's, how do you deal with um, an abusive relationship? How do you navigate high school and being a mom? And oh yeah, and having a crazy, um, you know, significant other. And I felt so alone. Nobody else was in this position. None of my friends were pregnant and had babies. None of my friends were in these this this terribly wow. volatile relationship. You know, most of them were trying to figure out what they were going to do for prom. And it was such an alienating and just almost devastating experience because the life of my child had just been put in danger. You were 17? I was 17. I Like I said, uh, my daughter Christ. was was uh, either a couple weeks or a couple months old. But at this point, my daughter's life had now been jeopardized. Right. Her safety had been jeopardized. And um, I got back in the car. I took him to his house. And he basically was like, you know, I hope you learned your lesson. Like, we, you know, we, we this never should have happened. And so he showed no remorse? No, there was no, no remorse. No, it was, it was my fault. It was always my fault. Um, and I dropped him off and a couple of days later I went to the courthouse and I filed the first restraining order, um, against him. And that was also humiliating. The entire process of dealing with that situation from start to finish is humiliating. And I feel like People always ask, well, well, why didn't why didn't they say anything? Why didn't they, you know, report it? Why didn't they, you know, ask for help? It's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing and humiliating to admit that you have allowed yourself to end up in this position. And 
I, I credit my daughter for why I am where I am today. So your, your, your dedication to your daughter helped you overcome? It was, I could never allow her to live a life where this was a norm. Mm. Um, and anyone who knows me knows that I am an incredibly stubborn person. Can I ask you something? Yes. So thank first of all, thank you for sharing that. So with my, my ex, my marriage, prior marriage, um, I've always been like a tough dad, I think. And, and I feel like sometimes I came off just a little bit too harsh. Right. And there's this dichotomy of trying to be a disciplinarian and trying not to be too, um, what's the word, too jovial with your kids. Mm -hmm. Too lenient. Too lenient, I guess. How do we balance that as fathers, though? Because I'm not saying that situation, I went to that extreme, but I'm because I had that conversation before where it's like, oh, you're too difficult. You're too tough. And so it's potentially I think my daughters would probably uh, agree that I was I was. I was pretty, um, at least my older daughter does. She always says all the time, like, I was too scared to do anything because I didn't want didn't want to deal with the wrath. Um, was he physically abusive? Was he? Um, I mean, other than he tried to kill me. Um, right, right, right. So, you know, right. that aside. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, in addition to that. He, um, he had, you know, pushed me. Um, he'd thrown me down. He'd locked me in rooms. Um he, I, I had to leave one time. I had to catch the bus in order to make it home for curfew. And we had gotten in a fight and he wouldn't let me leave. Um, and I contemplated throwing myself out a window because wow. uh, he had locked me in a room and I couldn't leave. And right. then every time I tried to leave, he would, you know, throw me on the floor. He would push me, push me down. Um, but that was prior to my daughter. And it was truly her being the catalyst to no longer accept those types of behavior. Um, but I, you know, my daughter says I'm the best dad she ever had. Wow. Um, and I make a better dad than mom. I don't have as much of the um, compassion, compassion <laughs> and the sensitivity that, see that. <laughs> one, one would expect in a mom, but... Um, I'll tell you what, her and I have taken my car apart. Wow. Um, you know, she would always cringe whenever I would tell her to grab my ratchet set. <laughs> and so we would pop open the YouTube and we would work on the car via YouTube video and my ratchet set. Um, and if things needed to be fixed, we would figure out how to fix them. Right. Uh, but. That's, that's amazing. And Mel, I just want to thank you for what you're sharing here. It's. It's going to make people better and it's making me better. And I'm learning a lot about you as well. And wow, I didn't expect you to go that deep with that question. <laughs> so I'm shocked. <laughs> so, but to get back to your question, you know, about, I think that if you come at your kids with love, mm -hmm. right? If what you're doing and you're coming at them is with love, then that should be your temperance. You know, if, if you, you come you at them in anger, then yeah, you're going to be too heavy handed. Okay. But, and, and I am a hundred percent guilty of coming at both my kids in anger. Like what the fuck? Right. Um, 
I would also just like to say that sometimes they had it coming. Um, little assholes. Um, <laughs> It's just but trying to balance it, though. That that's, that's my challenge. It and is. Like, it is. It's. I think it's a challenge for everyone. I think other people's challenges. How do they become more of a disciplinarian and less lenient because so, they're not comfortable with that? So my thing though is like has a lot to do with culture. So the way I was brought up in what people call high school here, I went to a secondary school. We get, we were flogged in school if we made a mistake, and with the culture here in America, it's just people are more lazy. I mean, no disrespect to anyone. I just feel like people are lazy. People don't have that drive, ambition. And I just can't stand to see any of my kids lazy. So I try to push them. I'd rather have kids that are successful than kids that are my best friend. Right. But they can be your best friend later. And it's interesting because uh, I had this conversation with my oldest daughter. It was so liberating when she turned 18 and graduated from high school. Because her life was now her own. Everything was on her. Her success, her failures, you know, that was her responsibility. Right. No longer was my foot up her ass to make sure she turned in her homework, make sure she got up on time, make sure, you know, she was doing what she was supposed to. She's an adult and she now has to take ownership of her life. And by doing so, that freed me to take a different role, which was now more of a, a advisor. Do you want my advice? You can come to me. I am not shoving or cramming or pushing anything on you. Right. And mm. we can be friends now. We can, you know, have different types of conversations. We can have, you know, different dialogues because there's not this pressure on me to ensure that you're doing what you're supposed to do because this is now 100% your life. And I want to help you. I want to guide you. Um, but so, only if you want it because you're an adult. So you're saying once, right up to that position of, let's say, 17, 18, you need to be that parent. That you have to transition right. to uh, giving recommendations and advice. Right. Yeah, okay. And, and I think that that is a challenge for some parents. Um, where they want to continue being overbearing. They want to continue to interfere and and dictate the course of their adult children's life. Don't you have to monitor the maturity level of your kid as well, though? Well, yes and no. Because at 18, they're legally an adult. Meaning that if they rob someone, guess what? They're showing up in front of the judge without you. If they're 17, they're showing up in front of the judge with you. Um, instill in them what you the values and the the morals that you want them to have, but understand that everybody's different. And that if you at 18, 19, 20 years old were making mistakes and those mistakes helped you grow as a person, your child has to make mistakes. They have to fail. Mm. Allow them to fail. Because failure is the best teacher. Right. I said that in one of my podcasts. Do you? Early oh. Nice. But, but the thing is, you know, so many of my failures have led to some of my greatest successes. Right. And if I had had people that didn't let me fail, and I had had, you know, somebody that wouldn't allow me to make those mistakes, then I never would be at the point where I'm at. And maybe, depending on how you look at it, that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I truly believe that you have to allow them to fail. And if you're constantly saving them from failure, you are doing them such a disservice. Service, right. You know, it's like sometimes pain is the best teacher. 
I have learned a lot of lessons and have the scars literally physically to, you know, to back those lessons up. But like I always say that like failure teaches you a lot, but just don't quit. Never well, quit, but just when you fail is when you really truly discover who you are. are. Right. If you fail and you're like, fine, whatever, I give up, then that says a lot about your character. Mm. If you fail and you say, okay, maybe I need to either think of a different way of doing this, or maybe this isn't for me. So for example, I thought I was going to love epidemiology. I was just so excited. I was like, yeah, I'm going to take epidemiology. This is going to be great. And I took it. <laughs> and it was one of the worst classes That's I ever took. Epi's hard. And I hated it. I hated every minute of it. I right. hated everything about it. Right. And it, I came out away from that class going, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I took it. I'm so glad I hated it because now I know I'm not going to make that my major. <laughs> right? And there's, so there's nothing wrong right. with, with changing directions once you realize something isn't for you. Right. Or that you're not, it's not what you thought it was going to be. Um, so, so there's a difference between changing directions and quitting. Right. Quitting is because you don't want to put out the effort. Changing direction is you realize that this is not no. a, the right path for you. Right. And that's important. But again, you're never going to know that until you try and fail. Right. Or maybe you try and you succeed at something. Let me ask you this, though. So let me bring you back to the topic of today. What's your, um, your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the Me Too movement? Uh -oh. You know, I'm real conflicted. <laughs> I am so conflicted. Um, you know, they talk about one in three women is, is a, a victim of sexual assault, and, you know, one in however many women are victims of domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. And so I can appreciate bringing that to the forefront. The aware but awareness. Awareness. But my problem is, is that awareness does jack shit if there's nothing to follow up. So what? So now you've got the hashtag me too, hashtag so what? So now you know that this is an issue, but what are we doing about it? Men are not getting away with it anymore. I mean, oh, bullshit. I mean, I mean politicians, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes and no. All right, so listen, look, look you at got. Bi look at Biden. I'm right looking now. at Biden right now, and I'm looking at all the people that say, well, that's just how he is. That's just Biden. Oh, well, he does that with everyone. So you're still having people making excuses for for actions that made people feel in, uncomfortable, right? So the Me Too movement is very selective. It's very selective with only women. It's not holding women accountable for them making men feel uncomfortable because there is the flip side to the Me Too movement, mm. which is a completely different rabbit hole we won't get into. Is that a thing, though? I think it is. I 100% think it is. I think that if, if your behavior is crossing a line, let me back up. Prior to your behavior crossing a line and there being a Me Too movement and all this other thing, I think that... One of the things that we have failed to instill in both men and women, but a lot of it women, is open your mouth and say something. If somebody is making you feel uncomfortable, somebody is doing something, then don't just sit there passively and, and allow it to happen if it's bothering you that much. Isn't that blaming the victim though? Or I think it's called taking ownership. 
there's a lot of st shit that gets said in, okay, so let's see, I've been in the military since 2004, and I have been privy to a lot of conversations that just make me cringe, and I'm like, ugh, I cannot believe you guys said that. But personally, it doesn't bother me. There have been very, very, very few times where anyone has crossed a line where I'm like, okay, that made you uncomfortable. That made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And probably a handful of times. But the point is that if something makes you uncomfortable and you don't tell them, then if they truly are not giant raging douchebags and they don't know what they're doing is making you uncomfortable, then the onus is on you to say something. Now it's victim blaming when you open your mouth and you say something and you're like, hey, when you say that or you do that, that makes me uncomfortable. And they come back and they're like, oh, why are you so sensitive? Oh, you know, why did you get so upset about that? Oh, you know, it was just a joke. Now you're looking at victim blaming because somebody has expressed to you what you've done has made them uncomfortable. Right. And a normal human being should say, oh, I'm, my, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Just like if you're walking down the hall and you accidentally elbow someone. Hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Right? You you naturally don't want to make somebody uncomfortable or hurt their feelings or anything else. And so if somebody brings it to you and says, hey, you know, um, when you say this or when you do this, it hurts my feelings or it makes me uncomfortable. And they respond with, oh, okay, no, sorry. I won't do it again. Okay, now we can, now we're done. Now this issue should be dropped. But I think you get into victim blaming when somebody expresses their their feelings to you and they tell you what you've done has made me uncomfortable right. and they come back with, oh, no, that's you, not me. Right. Oh, it's your problem because you're too sensitive. Why can't you take a joke? You know, blah, 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 blah. So at that point, that person refuses to take responsibility for their actions and they would they're putting it back on the victim. That's when you get to victim blaming. Got That's when, when you are now crossing that line and you're dealing with a douchebag and not a normal human being. That's amazing. See, that's why I had to bring you on because you just always make me better every time I talk to you. And I know you made a lot of people better. And at this point, I need to ask you, will you come back for another episode in the future? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, if you want me to, yeah, absolutely. It's awesome because I always get better. Um, is there any other thing that you didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on right now? Anything you'd like to say? Or are you all, are you spent? Are you done? <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, I can keep talking about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fine because I want to save some for later. And I want to thank you again for coming on and touching on a tough uh, topic and really unpacking a, a, a plethora of different things from sexism to the military, I mean, to um, spousal abuse. Melissa Moses, thank you again for coming up, coming on the Past Your Limit podcast. She will be on again in the future. I guarantee that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I will talk later. Thank you.